You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Confidence. The speech was on, and then the speech was off. The networks were told to reserve time for the President of the United States, and then they were told to cancel it. Find other programming. You got trouble here, gentlemen? Uh, you going to save this kid again, Fonz? Maybe. It's cool, Fonz. I'll handle these clowns. There was no explanation. When reporters asked why, they were told, no explanation. So that, the canceling of the speech, became the story. The New York Times blares, President cancels address on energy. No reason offered. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. It's worth mentioning that we're in a time when the president asks for time, it's all the networks that he will dominate. He'll grab the American TV set. You can turn off George W. Bush. You could turn off an Obama, a Donald Trump, if you want. You could turn off Joe Biden, if you want. You can't really turn off Carter unless you want to watch the 700 Club or something like that, and you don't. Carter had taken to the airwaves in April 1979 to remind Americans, as he had done before in the previous two years of his presidency, to turn the thermostats down to make better choices about cars, to warn them about the dwindling oil and natural gas supplies that every expert was predicting, and to urge their congresspeople to pass reform. He was about to do that again. And then he suddenly wasn't. A day passes. No explanation. The New York Post headline, What the heck are you up to, Mr. President? The ones who definitely can't answer the New York Post's question? The Carter aides, like Jody Powell, the press secretary. He doesn't know what the reason is. When he asks, he was told, just tell him to cancel the damn speech. Uh, Stu Eisenstadt, the Carter's domestic policy advisor, has an idea why. Because he saw a memo. One that he didn't like. But he's not talking to the press about it. Snowball. Canceling the speech is, it turns out, a lot more interesting than what that speech would have been. Now, Carter leaves the White House. Goes to Camp David, that presidential retreat named for Eisenhower's grandson, to read and to think even to put together former enemies to make peace. 
He likes it. And he's there. He takes a day, then another day with his notebooks. Gone to the mountain, the press dubs it. It's irresistible as a story, especially because the press is being kept out and the press cannot be kept out for long. Now, as the author and historian Rick Perlstein describes, marine helicopters shuttled people up to Camp David like Greyhound buses. Carter wanted to talk to people. Be honest with me. What's really wrong here? He talks to governors. One of them, later confirmed to be Robert Riley of South Carolina, says, You aren't leading, Mr. President. You're just managing. Businessmen. Religious political leaders, all consult with Carter. We believe Bill Clinton, a young governor then of Arkansas, who happened to be in a nearby Governor's Association meeting, tells him nobody in his state sees that Carter from the 1976 campaign. Pearlstein again. Upon their arrival to what the shutout media had called the mountaintop, Ham Jordan, de facto Carter Chief of Staff, would hand them a book, The Culture of Narcissism. It was referred to him by youthful, contrarian, challenging, and unorthodox pollster Pat Cadell. The president wanted the visitors to read the book and give him their thoughts about it. Is America too self-centered? Can we do anything together anymore? What's wrong with the country? And if it's Jimmy Carter, if that's what's wrong with the country, well, the president wants to know that. No punches pulled with his own staff. They would sit around in Camp David and say what they felt to their boss. Rafshunas media advisor says, You were elected to kick ass, sir, and you haven't. He called up old Washington hand Clark Clifford. Why haven't you fired a single person, Clifford says. A single incompetent. Jesse Jackson tells him the nation needs leadership, politically but also spiritually. Eisenstadt thought that the staff meetings and the other meetings were like a seance, with people just speaking what was on their mind, but not coming to real, usable conclusions. Vice President Mondale was frustrated about this whole thing and wanted the president to get back to the energy speech he promised the people he would make. He knew what was behind this. That pollster, Cadell the youngin. He engineered a meeting first with Rosalind, then a breakfast with Jimmy Carter. Mondale, as vice president, knew about this. He and Rosalind were drinking the Cadell Kool-Aid, Mondale said later. Buying into that there was a larger American spiritual problem, wasting time, wasting valuable political capital. Ham Jordan wished he could cancel the meeting, but they took on a life of their own. Invite a governor? You need to invite a mayor. Invite a Lutheran minister, you need to invite a rabbi. The whole thing mushroomed, a staff member would say off the record. Days go by. Where's that speech? Is there going to be a speech? Is some new policy going to come out of all these helicopters? What's happening? I worked hard all week, Carter said. He said in his diary later. It It isn't isn't always always easy easy for me to to accept accept criticism criticism and to reassess my own ways of doing things. My own ways of doing things. And admit admit my mistakes. mistakes. I ran every day, three to seven miles. And afterward, I swam. Pearlstein notes, he heard from economists, which 
left him annoyed, than from religious leaders, which left him over the moon. It's useful to focus on Pat Cadell here, person who's made a living from McGovern to Trump, advising candidates to think about the forgotten voter. The criticism of Cadell is that he's had the same mantra for decades. Others say he really taps into different things. Here, he had been running polling all through the Carter presidency, noting trends, noting larger trends. His memos reached a president no longer in his rookie year that we talked about in a previous episode. This wasn't 77. And maybe the wall that aides had put around a president that always happens, never quite happened in the Carter presidency, but still happened a little bit. And he was hungry for a new approach. Cadell didn't flatter Carter. Mr. President, they like you. They don't like the job you're doing, Cadell said. You're boring them. They are tuning you out. Cadell was confirmed by well-publicized polls in the media. Carter's approval rating was, at one point in June, at Nixon Lowe's. Former Governor Reagan of California, the presumed front-runner, but also somebody that people saw as a bit of a sideshow at times, like too conservative for the general American public. Sex will be taught in the schools with no moral connotation whatsoever as a purely physiological act, just physical, like eating a ham sandwich when you're hungry. Well, in a sense, when you do that, you are teaching immorality. Yet he's ahead in all the Republican polls. And at this time, is the likely nominee. You know, they ask Republicans, whatever Reagan's faults might be, they're only given about 15% to former President Ford and single digits to all the other people, Bush, Connolly, that. Reagan's winning all the polls and suggested to be winning all the primaries. At some times in 1979, Reagan is polling above Carter. So he's in his third year of his presidency and there's almost this inevitability politically, people know he can be beaten. Little bit of a lame duck effect, perhaps? Well, it's not so much the Reagan polls. The most devastating is the Kennedy polls. That's right. Senator Ted Kennedy was beating Carter for the Democratic nomination in newspaper polls at this time and had been since 1978. There's all of this talk that he's going to run. The Carter team knows he's going to run. But what's worse right now in 79 is that polls are showing He'll also beat Reagan. He could deal with that. But what it really meant was he wasn't getting his energy bills passed or anything else either. Cadell maybe was offering something that the person in the White House could uniquely deal with. Nobody in Congress could. No Washington pundit could. It's not just about energy, Mr. President. It's about American confidence. People don't feel good. For instance, and and before we think this is too goofy or something, Here's a real stat. 32% of Americans viewed their own future pessimistically. Forget Watergate, which had partially elected Carter. During the worst part of Watergate, this stat was more 44%. More helicopters. More meetings. The president will see 130 people. Time Magazine says, sometimes in blue jeans, sometimes in snappy sport coats. The president took measure. He goes to the houses of two random citizens. A machinist in Pennsylvania tells him, People do not respect you anymore, Mr. President. They're saying bad things about you. 
former Marine in Maryland. Both of these guys had voted for Carter in the last election, and they may still do so, but they're warning him. Carter diligently writes down what he and his neighbors say. The visiting of the American president to random people's houses is a way to get away from this story about the mountaintop, but it doesn't help Vice President Mondale's opinion of this whole thing very much. He had had enough. Cadell was spouting garbage that had no basis in day-to-day reality. Energy was a real political problem that they, the elected president, had to solve, not a national psychology problem. When Carter announced he wasn't making the speech, Mondale's upset. Hamilton Jordan described how Walter Mondale operated as vice president, the veteran of Minnesota politics and the U.S. Senate, the friend to Hubert Humphrey, picked to serve with the Georgians. And Carter had brought in an awful high number of people from his home state who he trusted to serve in his White House. Mondale didn't jump into every discussion. He'd wait. Sometimes he said nothing at all, unless asked. But when he did speak, Jordan recalled, God Almighty, it had power. And he uses it here. Mr. President, you simply cannot make a vague speech telling the American people they have no confidence, in effect. This has been wonderful, inspiring time in the woods. But the whole country's watching, Mr. President. You need to go out there and deliver that energy speech. After all, that's what you promised to do. He also hit Cadell directly. It was irresponsible for this pollster to bring this advice to the president. It was not well thought out. None of his solutions have been battle-tested. He hasn't consulted with anyone in the cabinet, Mr. President. Cadell, who was under 30 at this time, told a reporter he thought it was over. His time being associated with an American president in a White House, he just got reprimanded by a vice president and his time was over. But Carter, not Cadell, was the one who had made up his mind. And it should be stated here that Carter didn't just like follow Cadell like some type of guru. He certainly bit into his idea, uh, but he didn't follow everything to a T that Cadell wanted. For instance, Cadell said, consult with some experts. He didn't exactly talk about the whole Camp David thing. Carter specifically wants to get beyond just Cadell. And that's why he wants to really talk to these experts and gather their opinion, not just in a showy way. Carter also wanted to test his aides and their thinking. They did agree with the general approach that the theme of what Carter speaks to has to be broader. Carter takes Mondale on a walk around Camp David. It is probably the most tense moment of their relationship as president and vice president, which arguably has been one of the good ones in history. It's important that Mondale comes from the Humphrey School. That was uh, Carter's opponent, even if he didn't run directly in the primaries. That was Carter's real opponent in 76. That's who a lot of people wanted at the convention. You know, before he actually got to the convention, it was too late. He feels he's supporting the president by saying this, Mr. President, we are goners, goners, if we go out and say, it's your problem, American people, you're not confident enough. Mondale knows in his political gut that this circus will ruin them. Fritz was distraught. distraught. I took took him him for a hike in the woods woods to to cool cool him down. We have differences, but he... 
is the best vice president. I told him that my mind was made up. As a small accommodation, Pat Cadell is removed from the remainder of the Camp David meetings. Carter now goes to work on a speech synthesizing the best parts, not used to practicing his speeches. He, he never did that before. His previous speeches, he wanted to do the opposite, to be the type of Sunday school teacher that he was, to speak as a normal human being. In this, he realizes he's got to do something different. He gets a trainer. One trainer told him to change his voice a bit. Stop like that weakening at the end. Be more forceful. And the trainer puts Carter up at a podium and says, start speaking, give me your speech, and slowly starts walking towards the door. And Carter's a little shocked and said, Mr. President, you are losing me. You are going to have to make your speech and convince me to stay in this room. Carter starts speaking and changing his speech in a way that'll kind of get the interest of this trainer so that he's not leaving the room anymore, avoiding that kind of monotone. It's an old Hollywood producer's trick. A great irony to all of this is that all of the mystery is building up interest. It's practically part of his plan. Carter was told by Cadell that he was being tuned out by the American people. He was being too predictable. They are perhaps tapping into a bit of what later would be reality TV doing things like this, breaking the normal pattern and telling those, the press secretary, tell them there's no explanation for why we're canceling the speech. You know, that normal pattern is president makes speech, sends legislation to Congress, Congress votes. And as Time Magazine said, as theater, it offered mystery, an aura of crisis, a high moral purpose, and a dash of comedy. It really does. When he does make the speech, two weeks later, 100 million Americans will tune in. Good evening. This is a special night for me. Just to put that in perspective, 40 million tuned in for his energy speech in April, even with all of the TVs on Carter. Exactly three years ago, on July 15th, 1976, I accepted the nomination of my party to run for president of the United States. And he was hoping to get 60 million. He gets 100. The talks and the press conferences have become increasingly narrow, focused more and more on what the isolated world of Washington thinks is important. On one network, CBS Carter's um, speech will preempt Moses the lawgiver. That's some expectations. This is from a young woman in Pennsylvania. I feel so far from government. I feel like ordinary people are excluded from political power. And for a speech that would become infamous, even ridiculed later during the campaign in a year and also later in history, in many ways, Carter knocks it out of the park. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. That's certainly his perception, and the instant polls show it. The confidence that we have always had as a people is not simply some romantic dream or a proverb in a dusty book 
that we read just on the 4th of July. Reviews are great. From the Baltimore Sun, the nation saw an old friend, a man who understands about its country's problems. Looking for a way out of this crisis, our people have turned to the federal government and found it isolated from the mainstream of our nation's life. Washington, D.C. has become an island. New York Newsday calls his presidency a born-again presidency. For too long, the nation and its leader in the White House lost their way. Jimmy Carter has moved to regain the leadership he lost. Opinion polls will soon show an 11-point bump from the crisis in confidence speech. Maybe he stumbled upon it, but focusing on broader issues was probably the right decision, with apologies to Mondale. Effective, at least for the moment, if it had been handled right. The post-speech game was the issue. During a speech, Carter had never used the word malaise. And yet this speech, the crisis in confidence speech, is now known as the malaise speech in some circles. Reporters started using that term. The only place that word had been used was Pat Cadell's memo. Polls from the West Coast showed it was the best speech they ever had. 100 millions watched. Down through the years, this speech has been called pressy. But then, I, I would make, make a mistake. mistake. One, One that I would that later, I would later regret. regret. This was 1979, and there would be mistakes. The president was no longer a novelty. He could not really be a Southern populist as he described himself two years before. Yet there were moments that any White House craves in this presidency so far. Here was Carter meeting with Soviet leader Brezhnev in Vienna. Mano y mano, a meeting that Secretary of State Cy Vance would say would see this White House nail down that USSR relationship. It was always shaky. It was time to just put relations between the first world and the second world on a stable footing. It is what it is. The USSR is there. We're going to stabilize it. There was Carter meeting with Deng Xiaoping as he recognized China officially and opened embassies. I liked him, he said. He's short, he's tough, a pleasure to negotiate with. The world is untranquil and we must stay together. I like it that he says what he means. There was Carter at Congress pushing a second SALT II treaty, building on the peace established by his predecessors. The treaty adopted the common sequel nomenclature of 1970s movies, Jaws 1, Jaws 2, and at this time, Rocky 2 is out. Balboa, played by Sylvester Stallone, would fight Creed, Apollo Creed, a second time for the heavyweight championship of the world. This time, a more existential battle, a more economic hurdle, the one-time underdog superstar spending all his cash. A meat worker now, getting laid off. Exhausting his limited fame. One chance to beat the champ. Who gets off the mat first? Carter too keeps chipping away at it. He puts Begin and Sadat, Israel and Egypt, together. He had already got them together the previous year in his retreat in Camp David. 
Now he puts them together on paper to sign a treaty. He appears with Sudat at the at the pyramids. Sudat's not as the problem. Begin is hesitant to deal. He appears in front of the Israeli Knesset, the leader of the free world, urging, the leaders may not be ready for peace, but the people are. You've got a president in front of you. You don't waste his time. Begin's annoyed by the speech. But it needed to be said, Carter would say later. Many things he's wasting his time going, putting his presidential body to try to get this treaty done. These two countries just simply won't have it. Majority leader Robert Byrd has a speech already. Sappy stuff saying about how well Carter tried, and at least he tried and all of that. But the treaty, he thinks, is bogged down when the news comes that Begin and Sadat will indeed sign that treaty. Jesus, he says to the president, you are not just a deacon, you are the pope. In any other White House, that moment gets a bounce. That's a significant deal, not only for Middle East peace in general, world peace, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, etc. But it's a region that is directly related to Carter's big focus on energy. But immediately, another story wipes it off the page. The accident occurred here at the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant a dozen miles south of Harrisburg. At about four o'clock this morning, two water pumps that help cool reactor number two shut down. A nuclear disaster near the state capital of Pennsylvania in a residential area. Steam escaped into the atmosphere and radiation was detected as far as a mile away. A new technology that people don't understand that Carter has advocated and made part of his alternative energy program. Suddenly, Cairo isn't as important as a potentially radioactive Pennsylvania to Joe American. And a meeting with Brezhnev, too. It was great, but then the news starts to report that the Russian leader was dozing off during the meeting. And Carter's team was holding this information back. Said Knight Ritter, James McCartney. Brezhnev is in such poor health that no bargaining was possible. He was far too gone for real business, an anonymous official said. Even that Middle East treaty between the two big hostile powers, that foreign policy button won't work the same way, a political consultant says in Time magazine, because in 1979, domestic problems loom so large. We are becoming concerned about a recession, he notes in his diary. His own White House warns of what they call an inflationary recession. And this is interesting in today's time, and I'm surprised I haven't heard too much of it. Maybe I haven't heard it on the news and it's just me, but an inflationary recession. In other words, the concept is it's not a recession because there's still economic growth. But when you subtract the inflation rate, when you account for inflation, you're in negative territory. Why a White House would want to do that to themselves? Well, this is a department that isn't always under the direct uh, command control of the president. Even as Middle East peace um, is framed through the raw cost of life, because the fact is Carter's deal is going to involve some payments to the major players, Israel and Egypt. A letter to the editor. The Mideast Treaty will cost the United States around $5 billion. Most of that will be in loans paid with interest, but $800 million is a gift. What's more important, Middle East or 6,000 jobs? Time for Carter to look outside the Oval Office and look at the flag flying there. Signed, Jerry from Maine. 
If you think social media is cool, by the way, read old letters to the editor and people's opinions. They're all little presidents, little commanders in chief with their opinion. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Jari's not the only one. It's also going to cause, in this year, Carter some problems with European leaders. He's going to have a horrible economic summit. Uh, Thatcher in the UK and others are going to be against some of the deals he's cutting with these Middle East nations because it's going to hurt them. It's taking, taking oil supplies off the market that could be for them. The US ally, the Shah of Iran, has fled his country due to a groundswell of opposition. This was something that was unexpected. The Shah has been one of the greatest allies in that part of the world. But the military and new civilian authorities seem to have things under control, Carter notes in his diary, which he keeps every day. Khomeini, the outspoken cleric, leaves exile in Paris to go to Tehran, and his landing and entrance to the country occurs without any violence. Everything happens peacefully. Sign of relief. The army, he says, is keeping their powder dry. They have this under control. In fact, a group of students enters the Skeleton Crew U.S. Embassy on Valentine's Day, 1979. They won't leave. And they attempt to hold the staff there hostage. It takes just a few hours. The civilian government of Iran kicks the students out of there and everyone is restored unharmed. The whole thing is wrapped up in a day, and it's Valentine's Day. Also, another quiet victory not reported in the news. 40,000 Americans who are in Iran are brought out. This all occurs quietly so that the Iranians are not disturbed by it, but it's not something that makes the news, and frankly, it's not something that makes history, given the events that will come, that uh, great more Americans could have been in harm's way if not for that previous operation. Carter travels, he visits Mexico and meets with President Portillo. Portillo, buoyed by oil revenues that have increased the economy of Mexico, wants to show off a bit. And in a press conference, in a joint appearance, he criticizes American policy during the visit. He significantly criticizes American leadership, Carter's leadership. You know, look at what's going on in Central America. They're all fragmenting. 
you need to have more leadership. And he's implying that maybe Mexico needs to lead the way. Carter meets him one-on-one and he does patch things up. He says, you know, we really have to have good relations between the U.S. and Mexico. These little snide remarks are not helping. And Portillo does go out there and have a press conference that kind of patches things up. But what people will remember is Carter making a poor joke about Montezuma's revenge on his previous visit to Mexico. It looked amateur hour and ruined that opportunity. Carter's diary finds him tested by the characters in Washington. Bella Abzug, head of a women's advisory board, former congresswoman, former candidate for New York mayor, is a pain in my neck. He asks her to leave the commission. It's supposed to be an advisory committee, not a criticism committee. A meeting with Senator Scoop Jackson is aggravating and discouraging. As usual, Scoop knows everything. We are always wrong. The worst was Ted Kennedy. He feels entitled to be president, Carter would write in his diary later, because of his brothers. Ham Jordan, Pal, all of them knew that Ted Kennedy would run. There's no surprise here. Poll said he would win, too. But as Ham Jordan would note later, Carter was always an underdog. He shouldn't have been there. He knew that. If he didn't work his butt off in Iowa, he wouldn't have even been in contention. He's not somebody reading the polls like that in a traditional way. In fact, Carter tells a group of congressmen, if Teddy runs, I'll whip his ass. Just so the message is clear, he doesn't just tell one group of congressmen. He tells another, and then another. I'll I'll whip whip his ass. It shows up in the press as expected. Vice President Mondale tells Carter that that comment was ill-advised. Fritz didn't like it. But I believe it improves staff morale, he said. It's really an uncommon situation. What other president would have to deal with this? Well, you think of President Taft. I think it's a very similar situation where this sort of Damocles from your own party is hanging over you, the whole presidency, really. Maybe maybe not in the first year, but since 78 forward. It didn't take long for the Secret Service to start to hear sound in the mornings. The President of the United States jogging up and down the stairs of the White House to get inside exercise in a protected environment. Exercise was important to Carter. So was getting up early. He would be up at 6 a.m. And the staff would have two glasses of orange juice ready for him. One, he'd gulp down while he was putting his sneakers on. The other, he'd leave for Roswell. Work harder. That extra work is key. It was always that way with him. It was the kind of thing that gave him the full picture when he did it. And if he didn't do the extra work, he didn't know what was going on. There's a meeting that's going to occur later, but I want to discuss now as part of what I just said, between a senator and Carter about the Alaskan Wildlife Refuge. It's not going to be something he acts on in 79, but the next year. But that senator brings up objections, very intricate details of the program, but brings up kind of general objections. And Carter 
This senator is shocked to find, knows the details so well that he knows the map of Alaska and knows the exact regions where the wildlife refuge is going to be and knows that the senator's objections do not apply to the area he's talking about. A distance of a few miles. That was Carter. So he could not just tell his secretary of defense to please find weapons that'll make the Soviets fear us, not just from a nuclear sense, but conventionally too, that make us a force to be reckoned with. He didn't just say that. He reviewed pages and pages of defense work to find out what would be the right recommendation. He needed to do that extra work so he could outsmart the hospital lobbies, the hospitals that were the source of healthcare inflation, and really a cause of all inflation. The hospitals set pricing or influence it greatly. If he worked to that 70th hour of the week, if he left that social event early to be at the desk, that key detail might open up, render visible the real problem. Ham Jordan would say, good morning, and get the look at the watch at 8.30, and Carter would almost laugh. He would tread lightly if Carter was in that study reading or writing a letter, or if he was at the Globe. That globe, the globe was, for the Georgian, a way to see the world in context, to see countries next to each other, to see how places close to other places might influence and what might be on a foreign leader's mind. That globe was right next to his desk in the White House. Now, it's clear to say here, this wasn't some silly exercise. Carter was also reading all of those briefing books before he started spinning his globe. Though annoyed initially by how much the military and his defense secretary was pushing the MX missile system, a new, moving, undetectable, retaliatory system. Instead of just having silos in the ground, this would be a chain link moving around so it was in different places at all times, and then could retaliate without being destroyed. He at first thought it was a waste of money. Many people would agree with that. But he came to read the briefing and to understand, maybe from some military sense, maybe as Ham Jordan suggests, from a little bit of politics, he had to look a little tough for members of the Senate. He came to support the MX system. It could be bad. He really did, as rumors started to get out, spend a lot of time managing the White House swimming pool, the White House tennis courts, who was using it. Yes, he would go to members of the White House staff and say, why haven't you married your girlfriend or boyfriend yet? Would get involved in the details. It was that grasp of detail that allowed him to focus on things like the bubble at Three Mile Island. The nuclear reaction in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, that was close to meltdown there. The bubble has, here he is in his diary. The bubble has gone down from 50 cubic feet. The explosion threat is moot. Radioactivity is still high, but it is probably iodine, which has a half-life of only nine days. This isn't an expert writing Carter. This is Carter, the president, writing. He goes to Three Mile Island himself with Rosalind in tow. It is a gesture of confidence. He expresses his continued confidence in nuclear power despite TMI, but this was an important part, an important alternative of his energy plan, and now it's going to be tough to sell it to the American people. Carter starts working more hours, getting up earlier. Secret Service now hears the stairs at 5 a.m. Rosalind gave up on getting up that early long ago. She'll awake when Amy does. Amy seems to like 
life in the White House. She's young during this time. Uh, she uh, shared a birthday with my sister Diane, and each year um, Diane would get a Christmas card or birthday card from Amy Carter. And she really was enjoying things. Both Rosalind and Amy, uh, you might think that coming from Plains, Georgia, that they were kind of uh, provincial. And that is quite the opposite. Uh, Rosalind really enjoyed being a Navy officer's wife, which Carter Carter was a naval officer, and traveling the world, doing big things. And the White House fit them fine. I think it gets short shrift in the telling of the Carter story. There's a lot of talk about those tennis courts. There's a lot of talk about he can't deal with car- Congress. We dealt with in the last episode the same questions occur in 79. Is it, I can't deal with Congress, or is it, we actually have different sets of politics and things we want to do, and that's the reason you have a problem with me and I have a problem with you. The knowledge from all those books, the memos, all that hard work, maybe he could work other avenues. If Ted Kennedy was going to block his health care plan, maybe Russell Long, the senator from Louisiana, who's showing interest in it, maybe it was a way around Kennedy. Maybe that extra knowledge and detail would help him with the car makers who are now coming around. They were obstinate in 1977 when this crazy new president was talking about energy. Now they were softening because consumers were getting the message too. They wanted to reduce energy and reduce their costs. In preparation for this podcast, I purchased a copy of the August 1979 New Yorker magazine, and it's quite interesting. A woman is at her sink with her young child. He has a tiny toy truck next to him, and she's got the end of a broom in a sink as the younger lad looks intrepidly down the drain. She does too. How one simple phone call saved a woman in a jam, the headline of this magazine ad reads. They then relay a conversation between a woman, identified as woman colon, and The cool line operator. It's my whirlpool garbage disposer. I really broke it this time. We can solve most problems over the phone, ma'am. I've had it for five years, woman says. It's taken everything, skins, cores, even my son's plastic car. We don't advise that. It was a mistake. But today, you know the metal band that holds the sack of potatoes together? Fell in, huh? It goes on and on, but this conversation between the helpful cool line operator and the woman helps her to be able to get out of that jam, pushing a little red button called Reset. Give it a couple of pushes, the cool line operator says. It works. You made my day. Just one of the ads in the August 27, 1979 issue of The New Yorker magazine, as well as several liquor ads, a big parakeet offering the wonders of Latin America. Let Sheridan Lima give you a taste of excellent wonder and ancient Peruvian culture. Is the brain a computer? asks Scientific American in an advertisement. Four glasses filled with brown, hard liquor on the rocks. The ice cubes huge and perspiring. The tumbler looks strong in the hand. 
If you are still drinking whiskey, it's because you've never tasted gold rum on the rocks, the ad says. A man with fluffy hair and a gray suit jacket, crimson tie, toasts you from a small box in the corner of the ad. To compete with the well-heeled New Yorker readers, ads must be clever. It's not just that we're the best. But Boodle's Gin, the ad says, we are the costliest gin there is. The costliest. Why wouldn't you want it then? And Campari says, 9 out of 10,000 Americans prefer Campari. 9 out of 10,000 Americans. You can see who this magazine is appealing to. It's the elites, right? This fall, suit yourself with the worsted wool and fire-lined gabardine, 100% from Burlington Mists. The jacket, 118 at all, Saks Fifth Avenue stores. The jacket comes in black, wine, or beige. It's more than just ads that this issue has. It has a story by Elizabeth Drew. They seem to have all the details of the two-and-a-half-week saga of Carter's speech episode. That... Pat Cadell's memo was the driver of everything. Cadell, who was the pollster at 21 for the McGovern campaign. In December of 77, Cadell was alarmed by the degree to which people expressed personal approval of the president, but also said they didn't think he was up to the job. At a breakfast meeting, Drew's language suggests Pat Cadell, who was not just subject, but perhaps source. At a breakfast meeting, he told Carter that the problems created an opportunity to be less of a transactional leader say, exchanging actions for votes, and more of a transforming leader, energizing others, changing them. When V.P. Mondale saw a copy of Cattell's Thoughts, Elizabeth Drew relates, he thought it was crazy. Throughout the article, Drew uses the term malaise, which Carter had not used in his speech, though it was in Cadell's memo. Drew had it that Carter didn't think Cadell was crazy. They also didn't jump immediately. Carter suggested that he add a few words on the end of his energy speech about confidence. This wasn't good enough for Cadell, who expressed his displeasure. Now, exposing the behind the scenes of the great speech is a wee unhelpful. But really, it's the actions after the speech and not any article or anything Carter said in the speech that matters. Carter's staff, during the discussion, suggests that he fire some members of cabinet and that it be meaty. They suggest five. It's an abstract number. It just seems like a big statement. No cabinet members are involved in the decision they don't bring in Mondale. As a suggestion of Carter's Secretary of State, Cyrus Vance, it's decided that the whole cabinet will turn in their resignation so Carter is spared having to actually fire anyone, or at least it seems. This, Carter says in his diary, was a grave mistake. Walter Mondale is traveling when he hears the news that not just one member of the cabinet has been fired, but five. He's asked, what's going on here? Are we falling apart? Especially because among those that are fired is Joe Califano. The staff didn't like him. He lunched with Kennedy sometimes. He had connections on the Senate and didn't know he shared details. Rosalind didn't think he pushed her husband's programs hard enough. It was thought that he leaked to newspapers, and he probably did. And this is 1979, and we have a president that's from the South. And Califano, the head of health, education, and welfare at the time, is pushing against smoking. 
Carter's a Democrat from a Southern state. He wants Kentucky and he wants North Carolina in 1980. Even in a pretty people first administration, there's got to be some politics, some thinking about what states are going to carve out a victory. Brock Adams, transportation secretary goes. So does Griffin Bell, a Georgian who wanted to leave anyway. But now it looks like part of a plan and not a good one. What a mess. Carter's firing looked like the activities of a tin pan dictator. This is how Rick Perlstein describes it. That matches contemporary descriptions. I mean, American reaction is basically, okay, yeah, tell Americans they have problems, but don't take it out on your staff. It's felt not just among the American people, but also among the Hill, where Califano in particular had good relationships. Doesn't help Carter in New York, which is going to be an important state if he's going to carry the 1980 election. Essential state. Califano's like there. They might even run him for Senate. The president has many things to worry about, not just politics. Word arrives to Carter that the Shah of Iran is greatly sick. He needs medical attention that only the United States can provide. Several requests are made by prominent figures, like Kissinger, Nelson Rockefeller, others. Carter is not only against it, he warns his staff that they shouldn't allow the Shah in. What if they shoot our people, he says? What if they take hostages in the embassy? The Shah was an ally. What signal would it send? Alone among advisors, Zbigniew Brzezinski isn't for it. It's not critical. Cyrus Vance thinks it's a humanitarian deed of great importance. It weighs on Carter because Carter had a personal relationship with the Shah. Carter asked for more information about the Shah's medical condition. He also consults the Iranian authorities, the civilian authorities. They do not object directly. But later, reviews of those phone calls between Carter and the Iranian civil authorities will record strong reservations, if not a formal objection. You know, they don't say don't do it, but the word Pandora's box is used during the conversation. Perhaps Carter doesn't hear this. Carter gives the okay for the Shah's entry into the United States. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like Democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics. And NPR anchor Steve Inskeep 
about the importance of talking to people who differ from you and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. What was going on with Carter? Economy wasn't terrible. You know, there were a good amount of jobs. Carter's going to create between 77 and 1981, 10 million new jobs for Americans. And that's something I just say this statistic and I don't think people believe it. (laughs) But that really is what happened. There was pretty good job growth, at least in a lot of them in 78 and in most of 79. GDP is okay at 2% growth. Not great. Not great. Just okay. Not the Eisenhower boom of America past. So that leads to a question. Was Carter just simply talked down? Did he not succeed because people didn't want him to succeed? Was he anti-establishment and a combined group of conservative establishment and liberal establishment? talked him down, said he was doing bad, so he did bad, told reporters over drinks, Carter's bad. There's a little truth there. It's not the entire story. In some ways, he did make mistakes. He admits them, too. Presidents since have learned that can't just run around Congress and go right to the American people because their opinions shaped by the people in Congress, too, and vice versa. Inflation was very high during Carter's administration, but not killer yet in 1979. This was to come. Interest rates were high. Americans are always thinking about the future, being told to drive smaller cars, useless energy, may not be able to go on that vacation trip, may not have a a future job, even though you have a job now, because there's no energy. Factory has to shut down. This seemed to plague Carter and is evident in this year of 1979. Exhibit one, a man in Austin, Texas, His name is Jimmy Carter. He's not Jimmy Carter. His name is just Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Walker Carter. He's a former weightlifter at the University of Texas. He's never run for anything, and it was real cool in 76. It was a real novelty. But now, by 1979, that novelty is worn off for for Austin, Texas, Jimmy Carter. All the peanut jokes are driving me nuts, he tells the reporter. Spends a lot of time in the pool hall. Did he vote for his namesake? Nah. Did he vote for Ford? No, he just never voted. I can't walk anywhere on South Congress Avenue in Austin where I'm not getting bags of peanuts thrown at me now. Austin Jimmy Carter said that the taunting has increased in 1979. He notices women make fun of him. He goes on a date and the woman will make fun of his name. And just try trying to order a pizza on the phone when your name is Jimmy Carter. Exhibit 2. The Gallup poll of June 1979. 26% approval rating. It might be a fluke. Scares Carter, particularly scares his advisors. You know, this is a temporary number. It's going to go up. He's doing all these things and no one's seeing the progress. Exhibit 3. A young Bruce Carlson on a school field trip, singing. My baloney has a first name. It's J-I-M-M-Y. 
My baloney has a second name. It's C-A-R-T-E-R. Now, I'm supposed to complete Oscar Mayer's jingle here. Because Oscar Mayer has a way with B-O-L-O-G-N-A. Kind of a neat little ad that was prevalent in 1979 uh, as a way of, uh, you know, people really couldn't spell baloney because it doesn't spell like it sounds. Just, I love to eat it every day, and if you ask me why, I'll say, because Oscar Mayer has a way with B-O-L-L-G-N-A. But instead, here, me and my school bus chums say, because Jimmy Carter has a way of screwing up the USA. Some kid probably heard it from his father, who sang it in a factory, and now everybody's singing it. It's, I assure you, spread faster than any social media meme I've ever seen. And here's the thing. Young Bruce Carlson, uh, even though he's in the third grade, he'll be on Team Carter in the 1980 election, the mock election that's held in third grade. And yet, there I am. I remember still singing that song. It's just what you do, especially when the meme rhymes. Exhibit four. (laughs) Carter goes into a marathon and it's very hot. He wants to not just complete it, but Carter is going to go for it. He wants to beat his previous time. He's pushing. He's pushing. And then he passes out. His doctor or somebody puts an oxygen mask on him. The Secret Service get him into an ambulance. We thought it was all over, one of the agents said. It's not, of course. But the press cannot help but make comparisons between this marathon event and his presidency in 1979. Yet he charges ahead. Not as many proposals in 1977, in 1979, but he hasn't completely learned that lesson. There's still a bunch of things going on. For instance, I mean, given everything he's focused on with energy and mental health and and all of inflation, um, conventional military weapons, he's still going to go ahead and launch both a hospital cost-cut program. In addition to that, oh, let's just go ahead and do comprehensive health reform. He also wants an oil windfall profits tax. There's some positive news on the energy front. Less oil's being used by Americans, maybe because it's more expensive, maybe because Carter 78 energy program made it a little more expensive. The GDP to oil ratio is the lowest it's been in four years. So are some negative stories. The American Statesman reports that a Texas town is for sale. Lookenbach, Texas, made famous by a Nelson and Jennings song, is for sale. Owners of the laid-back country hamlet placed it on the market in July 79. We think it will sell for little more than a million, people say about their town. In Carlsbad Caverns, four armed men took over, held the employees hostage for five and a half hours, demanding publicity for their grievances and a flight to Brazil. They took Linda Phillips, NPS employee hostage, though she was unharmed. They were veterans. We fought for this country, the Vietnam vet said, but it hasn't been fighting for us. There are too many immigrants in the country. They had been drinking a lot when they completed this action. The men did not get their wish of going to Brazil. Authorities captured them, and thankfully all were safe. A proposal for the popular election of the president died in the Senate in this year. Bob Dole and Howard Baker, potential Republican presidential candidates, supported the measure. 
but small state senators defeated it narrowly, 51 to 48. Defeated it. It went 51 to 48, but it would have needed 15 more votes for a constitutional amendment. Americans asked to rank the present, the past, and the future on a scale of 1 to 10. Rank the past 5.7, the present 4.7, and the future 4.6. 4.6 is not good news for anyone at the helm. In Texas, some 200 state employees who took on student loans were going to be docked pay until they paid up. One was a representative in the state house of Texas. I simply haven't had the money to pay, he said. It has been a struggle. Because of his legislative duties, his practice of law had gone downhill. Another couple, George and Marine Thompson, noted that they've been making $30 payments on their $1,000 student loan bill, but they missed a few. And the agency said, if they didn't make a $100 payment now, we could end up losing our car. News wasn't all bad at this time. The Voyager satellite is traveling in the solar system. Jimmy Carter's voice is on it, welcoming any potential alien life force that might be out there. It gets some really good views of the planets and the planet's moon. Does Jupiter's moon harbor life? Discoveries made by the Voyager 2 spacecraft indicate that life could exist on Europa, the most likely place in the solar system, in fact. Europa is coated with a crust of ice, perhaps perhaps five miles thick. In May of 79, Ronald Reagan tries a new word. Governor Reagan's progressive and innovative record as governor of California demonstrated a concern for average people and his field operative. A one Roger Stone said that Congressman Edwards of Delaware, a moderate, had been added to the Reagan team. Northern moderates have a place in this campaign, he said. Reagan's struggling to get purchase on the nomination. He's up in the polls with people. But the average Republican Party officials, state officials, are nervous about him. Unable to find enough fuel for their trucks, truckers go on an unofficial and illegal strike. They blow horns past the White House. This is when the street in front of Lafayette Square was actually open to vehicular traffic for the Clinton administration. Truckers drive down and blow their horns to get Carter's attention. Others try to block the George Washington Bridge and are met by New Jersey state troopers before they can. There's a significant strike in Louisville, Kentucky, and in other parts of the country. In Alabama, it gets violent. Snipers from a trucking company open fire at the wife of one of the strikers. Carter gets into a fight with his own Bureau of Labor Statistics over the calculation of the Consumer Price Index, the CPI. It's not a meaningless fight because the CPI is important now for calculating increases in Social Security payments, other pension payments, veterans' benefits, food stamps. The Bureau of Labor Statistics is saying that the basket of goods is that are a group of items that are used to con- con- calculate the CPI is worth $227 now, where it was worth just $100 in 1967. Carter says... It's due to the way housing and mortgages are calculated. See, um, and and perhaps we can explain it. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics are making this calculation as if every American is buying a new house each year at today's mortgage rates. But that's not true. Most Americans, their actual cost for housing 
is a mortgage rate that was fixed and calculated years before. This is making inflation look like 13 when it's probably 11%. Off the record, BLS economists are saying 11% is still pretty high. Paul Simon, congressman of Illinois, says, We are spending billions because of a faulty consumer price index. We're paying more in military pensions and other costs. Congressman Paul Simon, of Illinois known for his bow tie, is one of many Democrats starting to speak out against the Carter administration and will eventually be a supporter for Ted Kennedy. And as if all this wasn't enough, then the peanuts, or the missing peanuts. It involves Burt Lance, the budget director who had resigned in 77. The National Bank of Georgia that Lance headed up had provided a million-dollar loan package to Carter's Peanut Warehouse. Loans were first extended when Burt Lance ran the bank. Total loans reached $6.5 million. A report found repeated instances of checks written on a Carter Warehouse account at the bank, but there were not funds to clear. This is not standard acceptable banking practice. During that period, the warehouse owned $1.15 million and was still writing checks. Now, this could be okay because if the account was missing dollars, it had to have peanuts in the warehouse under bond, but it did not. Those peanuts during this period at several times were missing. They were sold, they hadn't been grown yet, etc. This was irregular, but not illegal, a special Justice Department prosecutor found. But if any monies were diverted from the warehouse to the Carter campaign, say? Those missing peanuts in 1975 would be Carter's missing tape, Carter's Watergate crisis in 1979. Carter was also struggling at times with his own attorney general, his childhood neighbor, Griffin Bell. One of the best people that Carter brought to town, the Washington Post would say. Even though initially, when Griffin Bell is brought in, people, the reaction to Washington is like, who is this guy from Georgia you're bringing in to be the highest lawyer in the land? When Carter comes in in 77, one of his ideas to restore confidence is, you know, in the, in the integrity of government, is to say, make the president not be able to fire the attorney general. It's Bell who says, Carter cannot do that. It wouldn't be constitutional. This will all be interesting when Carter later pressures Bell to prosecute a Dallas police officer who shot and killed a 12-year-old while handcuffed. A case that came from the early 70s that was now up for potential federal prosecution. Bell refuses. Carter asks him to do it. Bell refuses and holds firm. Bell is now going to be one of those cabinet officers who leave. This would become part of that Carter situation, the first post-Watergate president. He was held to a microscope, indeed one that he might have put on himself, but nonetheless was there. A travesty of justice, he said in his diary, about the peanut warehouse investigation. As we referenced earlier, Carter's going to actually launch a health care program. So something that's like, you know, seen as President Obama's domestic achievement takes a long time, takes like two years to get through, that Clinton tried his entire first year to do, Carter's going to try to get it through as just like a piece of a dozen other pieces of legislation. And oh, 1979 is the time to do it. He makes a political mistake. Perhaps many think it wasn't really a mistake, but it just reflects the rivalry had gotten a bit personal now. 
He doesn't tell Ted Kennedy on the day he launches it. Now, Carter's plan does make some sense, and it's essentially that uh, it's very similar to something proposed by Eisenhower once, that essentially the government will cover catastrophic expenses. So you got to pay for your normal doctor visits and the like, or get insurance or what have you. But for large expenses, pretty significant one, and you know, the federal government will provide funding for that, full or partial. Okay. He can't do a complete health care insurance plan because he believes it will increase inflation. Kenny doesn't agree with this. And he'll never agree with this. He believes there should be comprehensive health care insurance. Carter's point, Ham Jordan makes this point too, is Kennedy never introduces that bill into the Senate, this bill that he has in his head, because he wouldn't get more than five senators to support it. So he has a plan that cannot pass, but yet he has the power of a veto in the Senate, it seems. When I do some of these podcasts, I know the story. Much of what I'm telling you, I sort of know. Uh, more or less. This whole original series, Carter 77, was a 2009 podcast, at least the general outline, and we improved upon it quite a bit. A few details are added of color, the order of things, connect dots more, but on this run of the story, I can say a new storyline emerged, and that is the Carter team had this sort of half-baked idea that Ted Kennedy, their opponent in the Democratic Party, might be a good thing. Or, because I have no direct insider definitive statement on this, they could at least make the best of this situation to turn lemon into lemonade because Carter, the underdog of 76, if he beats Ted Kennedy... This leads to stories in newspapers and the television pundits of comeback, underdog, political genius even. At least one anonymous Kennedy friend is quoted in the press saying that this is absolutely the case. In fact, that the Carter team actually wanted Kennedy to jump in for their comeback story and was taunting him in certain ways. And I think like the examples you're going to use is not approving some of the spending that Kennedy wanted. There's no validity to that, I believe, but it's interesting that at least someone on that side felt it. Senator Joe Biden warns Carter that Ted Kennedy's been talking to senators in the cloakroom, but he's not getting that many. In fact, Biden says of the 14 senators who were up for re-election in 1980, who were Democrats, and now they're going to have a lot of say in the party and what the party does because... They're the people on the firing line this year. Only two of them wanted Kennedy on the ticket, and one was his neighboring senator in Connecticut. But Kennedy, the Carter team is thinking, is a windbag. And when he launches, the president is going to make him look foolish. And then when he faces Reagan, Connolly or Ford, but particularly Reagan, those being up in the polls will know that those polls don't matter anymore because Carter beat Kennedy. Ham Jordan relates a story here, and I have to say I was pleased to be able to meet Hamilton Jordan once, very briefly, in 1999 as part of a business meeting at the company WebMD in Atlanta, which I briefly worked for during that whole dot-com era. They bought a company that I worked for is more the the way to say it. And I got to meet him, and I said, uh, you know, they said, oh, this is uh, Bruce meet uh, Hamilton Jordan, probably having no idea that I'm 
a big reader of political books. And I said, oh, Mr. Hamilton, I read your book, Crisis. And he responded, well, that makes two of us. He relates the story. He had just obtained word from media sources. Oh, Ted Kennedy had an interview, Ham, and it did not go well. They knew that Kennedy was interviewing with Roger Mudd, who's a friend of the Kennedys, was going to give him a real softball interview and send his presidential campaign off. But it went really badly. We can't send you a copy, Ham, but you'll see. As uh, Hamilton Jordan relates, it was enough to give a busy chief of staff who has a lot of headaches a nice sweet dream when the phone rings at 4 a.m., a little bit earlier than Mr. Jordan was accustomed waking up. Mr. Jordan, this is the White House Situation Room. Please report. Students have taken over the American embassy. Our staff are hostages. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Students had come in in great numbers overwhelmed the Marine guards who were ordered not to shoot so as not to create an international incident. They overwhelmed the staff. Eventually, after threatening to kill other Americans, they got into the safe bunker where the CIA staff in the U.S. Embassy. He rushes over to the White House and uh, he sees Defense Secretary Harold Brown and uh, he writes... Hamilton Jordan, a little note as the president walks in. And it says, I'm waiting for him to say, I told you so. Because Carter had predicted this exact thing. If we let the Shah in, they're going to take our staff hostage. This is verified by multiple sources. I really tracked this one down. To be sure, it just wasn't Hamilton Jordan covering for his boss, Jimmy Carter. Oh, no. Everyone in these meetings agrees. Carter again and again said, don't let the Shah into Carter's collected. The hostages will be released before the end of the day. He does issue an immediate statement. Uh, the U.S. will not yield to blackmail. Iran would be held accountable. Now, as we had relayed earlier, and this is something not well known about the Iran hostage crisis, is that it had happened before, in February, in Valentine's Day, except there's a little bit of a difference. They're not getting that communication with the Iranian civilian authorities, and then they find, by the end of the day, the prime minister that they had been dealing with in that last crisis that helped get everything settled has resigned. He lost political power that... 
the students taking over the U.S. Embassy and the protests around the U.S. Embassy are so popular in the streets of Tehran that uh, he can't sustain his government and he can't be of assistance. Many ideas in the sit room that day. Special forces send them in. Harold Brown is clear. This is not Uganda where the Israelis got the hostages off a distant airfield. Tehran is a city of four million people. They come up with the idea, let's send Ramsey Clark. Now, Ramsey Clark was a former attorney general in the Johnson administration who had lately, at this time we're talking, become a radical, become um, against American intervention in the world and very a lot of, supporting a lot of leftist causes. And uh, he had a connection with the Khomeini in Paris. There's not many Americans that do. They find him. He's surprised. <laughs> He's not used to getting calls from the White House at the fringe of politics there. But he does agree. If I, I can go in and help get hostages released, sure. Khomeini then makes supportive statements about the student's actions. And it's pretty clear. He's associating himself with this illegal and, you know, <laughs> with this action that's against all of the rules of diplomacy. Word comes back soon, though. Ramsey Clark is not welcome in Iran. The hostages are not released in a day, nor two days, nor a week. Uh, from Carter's point of view, this is still a bit of a crazy situation, but a manageable situation nonetheless. It is unique. We have to really say this. That what happens in 1979, at least to American diplomats, is pretty unique. The basic rule of international law is you don't harm diplomatic staff. Now there's talk about, oh, there will be trials. So Khomeini's playing a bit of a game, and the government's playing a bit of a game where they're sort of saying these students did it. And it's not the actions of a government, so they can get away with violating international law. But then they're supportive of what the students do. Cooler heads must prevail, is the feeling in the White House. And there's this moment where um, the coverage from the press is really good. And someone mentions that to Jody Powell, the press secretary. And uh, Rafshun, the media consultant, says, The reason the press coverage is good right now is because they're thinking we're doing more than we're doing. Worse than this is this incident. There are pro-Khomeini protests in D.C. Pro-Khomeini, pro-Iran. Demands from these protesters that the Shah be turned over for his crimes. These aren't just zombie-headed fools. The Shah's secret police and military had killed many. The Shah was hated in Iran, and there's people all over the world who are sympathetic to that viewpoint. They haven't seen yet what's about to happen in the Iranian Revolution. Initially, their support internationally for this Khomeini government, or at least for the revolution. The French philosopher Michel Foucault, uh, the comments he'll regret later, supports a religious regime that will act according to morals. Still, this protest that they want to have in front of the White House is a fringe protest. Carter says, tells them to cancel it, cancel their permit. 
the D.C. government, the D.C. mayors, man, they've dealt with this um, Iranian student group before. Um, they've been perfectly fine. They haven't caused any trouble. This will cause greater protest in other parts of D.C. Carter responds, if he wasn't president, he'd be out there taking a swing at these people. So November 1979 ticks on. Bob Strauss, the head of the Democratic Party, you know, tells Carter, you've got to do something. This is the man that's going to be running his campaign next year. November 16th, Carter cuts off oil imports from Iran. You have to remember, Iran at this time is a oil source for America, an important oil source. It's estimated that it's something like 5% of supply in the United States, but that 5% is needed. Not only that, has a huge effect on prices of oil from everywhere else. Gas prices will increase. And this is where we begin to see the gas lines now associated with Jimmy Carter, with devastating political effects, memories of people, the things that they never want to see again. Carter keeps dealing with the civilian government, but what's happening in Iran is not clear. You know, according to Arthur Rick Perlstein, he suggests that Carter misjudges it. And a lot of people in America misjudge the whole situation around it. There's an actual civil war still going on. Hundreds of people with any connection to the Shah's government, even a light one, have been executed. Previous prime minister who was installed after the Shah left, who had no connection to the Shah, he was in opposition to the Shah, he's been forced out. The uh, There's the student movement and the protests and the clerics are using this movement to gain popularity for their regime. But Perlstein suggests that Carter keeps trying to write letters to Khomeini and figure out what Khomeini's thinking, figure, read between the lines of what statements are being issued. We're According to Iranian sources at the t from the time, Khomeini is spending most of his time praying in the religious center and not really running everything. Carter declares December 18th, 1979, National Unity Day. He asked Americans to show their flags. And many do. Carter will also announce that he's a candidate for re-election in December. There's a bit of a rally around Carter now. Kennedy's interview with Roger Mudd that Hamilton Jordan had heard about is now released. And he hurts himself. On the question of why he wants to be president, the first question he should have been able to answer, it goes on and on says nothing of substance. He wants to run for president because of America has the best technology or something. Iowa, New Hampshire, early this time. It's looking like he's going to defeat Kennedy in both of those early contests, leaving Kennedy with no wins. They release black and non-military, non-intelligence female hostages. This provides some hope until at the same time Khomeini says, we are going to try the other Americans. The Khomeini government issues a statement, why should we be afraid of Carter? He is beating an empty drum.
Here, Walter Mondale speaks out, now says, Mr. President, cannot allow Americans to be tried. Carter knows this. At home, Carter's getting opposition. You've got to do something, Jimmy, Rosalind says, again and again. She's, among other things, always a political advisor for Jimmy Carter. Send in the Marines. She'll maintain this opinion even after they're out of office. She steadfastly feels an attack should have been launched. Jimmy Carter's opinion then, in 1980, in 1981, in 1983, in 2000, and today, is, if he did that, those hostages would be killed. 52 American lives would be lost. Countless Iranian lives. They would not be able to get them out of the situation they were in during a war. So they'd be able to punish Iran, but they would not be able to, and, and probably as a war president, he's got a good case for re-election. I say probably, I'm not sure, but maybe. Even Lillian Carter, Carter's mother, says she thought Jimmy should send in some mafiosos to get this Khomeini guy. What they do do is, since Khomeini does not respond to the letters or the oil cutoff, is work through the Germans. The message is sent. The Iranians are talking to the Germans. Germans tell them, harm hostages and America will use that force that Jimmy Carter has thus far been reluctant to use. His, his patience is not limitless. Put an American on trial and the gravest consequences will befall upon your country. Carter goes up to Camp David again, spends a day with his notebooks. He looks at all of the options. He has a chart assembled of options and what's likely to happen. You know, he take out an oil field. He might shoot a hostage. That's the, the, the situation they're dealing with. He doesn't have to kill them all. He could kill one in response to a small action. So Carter's even reluctant to take a small military action. His uh, foreign policy advisors, national security advisor, and secretary of state are clashing on this in multiple meetings, as they would on so many issues, leaving Carter to decide. Vance says, Khomeini's trying to bait you, Mr. President. That's all it is. His government's losing popularity. Well, it's working. He's humiliating us, Vig said. Now there's a discussion among the Carter team because the Iranians are demanding that the Shah be brought back to Iran for trial. They want the U.S. to put him on a plane and get him to Tehran. Carter doesn't do that. He's not going to do that. But what he wa does want to do is can we, if he came here for medical reasons, can we tell the Shah to kind of hurry up, recover, and get out? He sends Ham Jordan to, they look for countries. Mexico refuses to take the Shah. Only Egypt, where Sadat is such an ally to Carter that he says, I'll take him. That's going to cause him huge problems and perhaps unsubtle Egypt. So Ham Jordan visits dictator, strongman of Panama, Trujillo. He agrees. He's like, I can put him in a mansion and protect him. They ain't getting to him here. Ham Jordan then goes to the Shah. The Shah reluctantly, he's never been to Panama, agrees to go there. And secretly, quietly, they send him to Panama. It doesn't do anything immediately. 
to change the situation with the hostages. But we're looking at this with hindsight. In the contemporary situation where Carter is a president, he's an incumbent president, about to run for re-election in a live election that, you know, whatever hindsight may say, is still his to lose, perhaps. December 11th was day 345 of 1979. The top song on American radio was Babe by Styx. Donna Summer and Barbara Streisand had just joined forces for Enough is Enough, a disco hit. Rupert Holmes was belting out If You Like Pina Colada. The movie 10 topped the box office. Dudley Moore and Bo Derrick, a screenwriter, falls in love with a woman, but she's already married and going on a honeymoon with her new husband in Mexico. What does Dudley Moore do? The most logical thing. He follows her, and a lot of hilarity and a lot of swimsuit scenes follow. Pink Floyd, another's brick in the wall, is a top song. People are playing video games, both in the arcade and at home on their Atari 2600 sets, now widely available. Asteroids is a big game. Walkmans now exist, cassette players with headsets, so you can tune out the world while you jog. People born in 1979, like Claire Danes, or Kate Hudson, Kevin Hart, are now 43, 44 years old. TV shows at the time included The Facts of Life, Benson, The Dukes of Hazard. Gas is a dollar, but everyone thinks it's going to rise soon, to a dollar fifty perhaps. Cars may soon be a luxury, a Texas paper reports. Hendrick Smith reports, For the first time in nearly two years, the Gallup poll reported Tuesday that President Carter is running ahead of Senator Edward Kennedy among Democrats across the nation. A dramatic reversal, indicating a sharp jump in public approval for Carter. Carter led 48% over Kennedy's 40% in a Gallup poll. The polls indicate Carter approval and disapproval of Kennedy's recent statements that seem supportive of Khomeini. Now, Kennedy was pointing out that the Shah ran, ran one of the most violent regimes in the Middle East and stole umpteenth billions from his nation. Nothing Kennedy said was wrong. You know, we, of course, don't look at the... American history doesn't look at the events of Iran enough three dimensions. We don't talk about the overthrow that led to the Shah's. But in any case, uh, Kennedy chooses this time to make that kind of balanced statement. This allows Ted Stevens of Alaska and Bob Strauss to pile on Kennedy, that he's a spokesperson for Khomeini. Carter wisely does not step in on on his uh, statement, Jody Powell says, the president will not allow himself to be drawn into debate while our people are being held. Here's something interesting. As 1979 closes, a new Republican, John Connolly, who had been Treasury Secretary under Richard Nixon, he was a converted Democrat, takes a swing at Kennedy. Khomeini must have been glad to hear his remarks. Bob Dole makes the same points. There are now some alternatives to front-runner Ronald Reagan. Connolly's gaining ground. One of the things that Connolly gets, it's a big get, is Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, who was thought to be the conservative stalwart and Reagan supporter, big supporter at the 76th convention. Why isn't he supporting Reagan again? 
He doesn't think he can beat Carter. He doesn't think he can win. That's going to give Connolly support in the South Carolina convention that's coming up. Until Reagan supporters turn into a primary. But that's a story that I've told in another podcast. Carter's now beating Reagan in a Harris poll, 53 to 44%. Reagan's dilemma, Lou Harris says, is having trouble gaining among moderates. And if he doesn't dominate the early primaries, if results are mixed, Republicans will start to look elsewhere. One of his key advisors throughout his presidency is his wife, Rosalind Carter. Her advocacy of mental health started when Jimmy Carter was governor of Georgia and Rosalind Carter headed up the Georgia Committee on Mental Health. She now wants to do the same for the country. Her efforts and her committee's efforts won't lead to the direct, exact language of the Mental Health Systems Act that will be passed in this year. But it will certainly have an influence on it. Mostly, it'll address the problem of funding community mental health centers. Now, not everyone who's involved in what could be a whole podcast about mental health issue agrees that this community mental health center approach is the right way. There are some that believe we're abandoning the hospitals too quickly in a drive to both reduce costs and limit the abject and unfair uh, institutionalization, the poor funding of hospitals and, and things like that, to replace them with local small community centers, decentralized, to allow people to live in their homes. That is the big part of Carter's Mental Health Systems Act. State authorities, desperate for funds to do something about this problem, would get funding, prevention programs, promotion of mental health. It didn't have the patient bill of rights that Rosalind Carter wanted. They couldn't get that to Congress, but it did provide needed funding. This was, much to the chagrin of both Carters, reversed in 1981 by Carter's successor. And so, you know, mental health is another issue which, what is, how often is it discussed today in today's politics? Every time that there's a shooting, it's more and more discussed, even though it's not the only issue behind it. And this is 2023. This is 1979. And you have an administration taking on this challenging task. And again and again, and I think this is, if you're going to go to bat for Carter, this is the thing. He's involved in so many issues that are tough. He doesn't take softballs. President Carter demanded last Friday evening that the Russians pull out of Afghanistan. There were an estimated 50 to 60,000 Soviet troops already there. From their deployment, it's clear to U.S. intelligence experts that the Russians intend to secure the major cities and the roads between them. This is a major problem that's more important than the Iranian situation, Carter tells Ham Jordan as Soviet troops cross the line into Afghanistan and send tens of thousands of Soviet forces in along with armored vehicles. They didn't give any warning to the United States, obviously. There wasn't a good indication that this was going to happen. It was a surprise. No action has surprised me more or changed my view more of Russian leaders than this event, Carter says. 
Carter recommends taking the SALT II treaty off the table. In doing so, he's joining all of those critics who wanted it off the table anyway. So now Carter is squelching his potential big foreign policy victory. But what can he do? Can't deal with the Soviets while they're invading a country. And it moves their sphere of influence closer to the Gulf. Afghanistan's landlocked, but it's closer to the Gulf where they're just one country away. But in all of this, his administration may have something to do with it. This is not widely known. In July 1979, Carter approved support for the Mujahideen, those fighters that were fighting the Soviet-backed government at that time. Zbig Brzezinski is on record recommending the plan to help tie up the Soviets in a mess. He felt the Soviets were having too much influence across Southeast Asia. They're particularly concerned about India, where the relationship between India and the Soviet Union is very strong. Too much influence in that region. Let's get them into an expensive trouble. It's a CIA authorization, and it's not well publicized. And it's only 500000 Now, this is in $79, so figure in the millions uh, now. Big help to a more primitive fighting force. The Soviets move in. Mm-hmm, there's a lot of dispute about it, but it, it seems like they move in because in the chaotic country, the president, Hafizullah Amin, kills the previous president who had Brezhnev's protection. That may not have been it, though. Not only does Amin do this, he threatens to kick out Soviet advisors. Soviet military operating as advisors have already been killed in Afghanistan by these rebels. Soviet look at the situation and they see the chessboard. They think, we get this from an article that appears in 1981 from anonymous Soviet sources. Senior diplomat says, they think Carter's going to attack Iran because of the hostage situation. That'll lead to regime change in Iran and American influence there. They're going to put missiles on the border. And in some pull-up bureau meetings, it's said that Carter will use Iran to build a new Ottoman Empire in the Persian Gulf. Later, this same Soviet official will say, well, we did expect it, and anybody but Carter would have done it. We were robbed. Gallup notes a halo effect after the Iran crisis, in the president's opinion. But there's other eerie notes. Ted Koppel begins on ABC a free-form broadcast where he's taking calls from experts, even in different time zones. What will become Nightline later is now exclusively focusing on this hostage issue. So the White House began giving not one press briefing a day, but two press briefings a day. And the State Department gave two press briefings a day. They loved the publicity to begin with. It was only after a month or so that they began to see that, uh, you know, this isn't working out so well. We don't know how we're going to get those hostages out. And it may be a while before we get them out. And here was ABC putting this program on which from the very earliest days came on with America held hostage, day 9, day 10, day 30, day 40. And all of a sudden, every one of those, and then Walter Cronkite picked it up. So they hated it. It's a new type of format that ABC is trying, and, uh, it, and that will go on and on and on. 
After Afghanistan, two-thirds of Americans support increased military spending. It's not surprising, but it's also Ronald Reagan's stated program. And we're supposed to be saying that Ronald Reagan is oh too conservative to elect. Well, now voters are pushing towards his program. Carter ends the year calling up Iowa, making phone calls to average, maybe people with a little bit of involvement uh, in, a, in a local committee in Iowa, but not people expecting a call from the president. He's dialing them up. He'll tell the White House operator to please dial these numbers, and he's making something like 20 to 30 calls a day into Iowa. Average citizens. It took me a few minutes to realize I was talking to the President of the United States, a Des Moines labor activist, Valadez, said. I didn't know what to say. I wasn't ready with a bunch of issues. But here he was on the phone with the president. Well, I asked Carter, remember me if you win. Carter replied, that's what it's all about. We should remember each other. That's That's what it's all about. about. We should remember remember each each other. other. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We had a Patreon there if you want to get some extra content and also support this program, uh, which, at least at the current time, is all I'm doing. Uh, Also, spread the word. Tell someone about it on social media. Give us a review, particularly on Apple Podcasts, but anywhere. Tell someone about it. That's how we get listeners. That's what's kept this show going all of this time. Listeners like you telling someone else. It's better than any advertising there is. I can assure you. I've tried. Thanks for listening.